everybody. Welcome into episode number two of the I Want to Know podcast. I am your host, Greg Jones. Thank you for joining me. I'll be taking you down this inquisitive departure into audio wisdom. I'm very excited to share with you the second interview of the podcast series. It is with Laura Johnston Cole. She's a Jonestown survivor. But before we get into that, I, I have a few things to run down first. I want to say thank you to everyone for all the really nice feedback I got on episode one. That, of course, was with Suzanne Perry. She is the domestic abuse survivor of 22 years. I got a lot of great feedback, really nice things people were saying about that. So thank you. I even received a very nice message from a listener saying that uh, they went through a somewhat similar situation. And I don't want to give any details, but uh, they really appreciate the episode. So I really appreciate that little message it makes me feel good that uh, someone got something out of that so thank you so much if you guys haven't heard that one head on over to episode one and give that one a download first i also wanted to make sure you guys know a little bit about the website i want to know show.com not only is it a place to find out about episodes or or find all our social medias or contact information like that but you can also click on the guests tab at the top there and i have a little bio on every guest that I interview, such as tonight, Lord Johnston Cole. Uh, I also have on the listen tab all the ways you can listen to the show, including a player right there on the page. And as of Wednesday, the day the show was released, we are officially on the TuneIn radio app. So iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, all your favorite podcast apps, we're on them. Please tell your friends about the show. That's how we get the word out. There's no budget for advertising. I don't have that kind of dough. Don't forget to rate and subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using, whether it be uh, iTunes or anything else. So like I said, I have a super interesting interview for you guys today. This one was really fantastic. I was really into it all the way through. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. Uh, this is, of course, with Laura Johnston Cole, Jonestown Survivor. First things first, I have to apologize for something, and that is that I had some file issues after I recorded the podcast. The long and short of it is that the file from the recording got corrupt, and the good news is I was able to save it, and you guys can hear the podcast in its entirety. The bad news is there is a section in the middle, starts somewhere around 17 minutes in, where the audio gets a little crazy and there's this uh, weird noise that accompanies the audio. Uh, but I beg of you, please do not turn it off. Please fight your way through it. It will end eventually. It's not the entire interview. I am so, so sorry, but I'm very glad that I was able to save the recording. I would have been very upset if, uh, if this wouldn't have worked out. This is such a good interview. So let me give you a little quick bio on Laura Johnston Cole. She is the author of Jonestown Survivor, An Insider's Look. She grew up in Washington, D.C. as an activist, protested the wars, visited Woodstock, joined the Black Panthers, and then finally she moved to California and joined the People's Temple. She eventually moved down to Jonestown and was a part of that whole situation and was actually very close with Jim Jones, as you'll hear in the interview. Since getting out, she's been married, has a son, and rebuilt her life. She earned her B.A. in philosophy and psychology, and earned her California teaching credential as well. Other than the book, Jonestown Survivor and Insider's Look, she's written many articles about the details of life in the People's Temple and her survival. She's now a public speaker and tours around speaking and promoting her book. And most importantly for you guys, she has chosen to come on the show. So I won't give away any more details. 
let's get right into the interview. And so joining me now is Laura Johnston Cole, author of Jonestown Massacre and Insider's Look. Laura, thank you so much for taking time out to spend with me on the podcast tonight. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, we're happy to have you. This is I actually received a ton of feedback uh, on uh, some Facebook and some some Twitter, and I got some emails. So people were sending in questions. They're very interested about this. So that's that's a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. So like I said in the intro, you were a, a Jonestown survivor, part of the People's Temple. You've moved on to some other organizations. So maybe we could just start with how you fell into the People's Temple. I saw in your in your bio that you were part of the Black Panthers before that. How did this all kind of mm-hmm. kind of work into the People's Temple? Well, I was um, born in Washington, D.C. I think of myself as like one of the original patriots because I was born in George Washington Hospital in Washington, D.C. And my mother was an activist, but she had three daughters to raise as a single parent. So she um, kind of instilled it in me while she was really working hard to you know, put food on the table and things like that. But she was always a, you know, a Democratic um, chairperson for the district. And, you know, we handed out hundreds and thousands of flyers over the years. So she was very involved in trying to make the world better anyway. And in our lives, you know, she was always PTA president and she was on the uh, planning commission for the city and a number of different things. So her, she really was my role model of somebody who doesn't take lightly the responsibilities of trying to make the world better. So uh, in the 60s, I was in high school in the 60s. I graduated from high school in 1965, and that was the most violent decade of American history. I mean, uh, probably the Civil War would compete and, you know, World War II and one. But in terms of on our soil, we saw these wonderful people shot down. So we saw, you know, John Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers killed. Um, I mean, we had these wonderful people who would potentially make the world a better place, and they were just shot down. So I grew up in that era thinking that, I was determined not to let the world be run by bullies. And so um, I went to college in 1965 in Connecticut. And when I was in college, you know, I got more involved in politics and SDS was, uh, you know, everybody was in SDS back then as a political um, entity, but I was in the human rights league. We decided not to join up with SDS, but, you know, so I was political in all of the 60s and then against the war in Vietnam. So I actually marched on against the war in Vietnam in New York City. One time I was marching with a friend of mine and she had her dog and we were marching down Fifth Avenue and we were all tear gassed. Wow. And so, you know, I just felt like there was no way not to become involved in trying to figure out what was going on and who was in charge. And uh, I wanted the American people to be in charge. So, um, you know, I got involved. I was involved with the Black Panthers for about six months. And they lived in my apartment for a while in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Oh, and, um, you know, we tried that. That was not successful for me. I was a little bit too naive under the circumstances, you know, I was political, but it didn't mean that I was making good decisions in every aspect of my life. So I tried that. That didn't work for me. And then I said, well, okay, just forget about it. I'm going to go to Woodstock. So then I went to Woodstock and really the uh, hippie life, it was, uh, it wasn't what I wanted either because I really wanted to have an impact 
and, you know, drowning my sorrows in drugs or alcohol, that didn't fit with my picture for myself either. <laughs> Although, you know, I did try everything I, that came my way. Well, so it wasn't, I wasn't a teetotaler saying, oh, no, I'm not going to do it. But, you know, as I moved through the process of trying things out and seeing what worked, the drugs and alcohol, I saw that didn't work. So um, about that time, and I during that same time, I had gotten married and we were blissfully happy for nine months and then I got divorced. So all of those things going on in my life um, disrupted any kind of commitment or pattern or stability. And so my sister lived in San Francisco and hate Ashbury. And so she, you know, called me and said, you know, I have watched your, your, uh, process over these last few years of making worse decision after an even worse decision. <laughs> and uh, you ought to come out and live with me in the Haight-Ashbury <laughs> in San Francisco. So I moved to San Francisco and she worked in the legal field and her friends who were attorneys, you know, she had probably told them along the way my interests. And they said, well, you know, there's this minister in Redwood Valley, California, and he has, uh, you know, people of all races in his denomination. He's very political and yet he's very you know, human and he has a wonderful family. He's adopted six kids of all races. And so that sounds like something maybe your sister should at least go look at. So for a couple of weeks, we drove up to Redwood Valley out of San Francisco. So about a two hour drive. Yeah. We'd go up and go to the meeting. And then, you know, at the end of, uh, you know, three or four weeks, my sister said, you know, that's really not for me. I'm not interested. So then I arranged carpools. And so I went on back up. And so I did, came as a visitor for about three or four months. And then um, my life in San Francisco was getting pretty complicated also. Um, I hadn't changed my patterns that much. And um, I decided, okay. Um, and at one point, Jim pulled me aside and said, you know, you really need to get out of the city and come up here. And he was pretty right. I don't know if he knew everything I was into, but, you know, he probably figured for, figured the worst and that's probably what was going on. So anyway, so then I moved in, in, um, in August of 1970. You moved into the people's well, temple. Yeah. And I moved into the assistant pastor's home to start with. And then about a year later I moved in and I started living communally and we had great, communes all around People's Temple in uh, Redwood Valley and then later in San Francisco and Los Angeles where people pooled their resources. And uh, and I just really loved it. I loved living communally. And I loved living, you know, with the other people who were as committed as I was. And, you know, we had the same interests and we, same activities and things. So, I mean, I um, fell in love with living communally then. And it sounded fallen out of love with that. Sorry. Uh, it, it sounded like it was a, a very positive experience in the beginning. Yeah, it was definitely positive. You know, um, I thought when I first went in and I saw Jim Jones, I thought that I could probably do everything I was doing before in the polit in the political realm. And he would protect me from myself if I got ahead of myself. I did think of him as a protector. You know, because I knew I was going to be political, but then he would come in and say, you know, last night I spoke to Angela Davis and then yesterday, you know, in the morning it was Dennis Banks and the other day it was Cesar Chavez. I mean, he had all these friends in high places who were people that I respected for what they had done. And so those were his 
you know, in a way the people he was conversing with about what to do about the world. And so, I mean, they were my same heroes. And I read you, I read a little bit of the book on Amazon um, as much as I could before we started tonight. And Mm -hmm. it said you didn't, you you mostly grew up without your father. Did you look at Jim as a, a father figure? You know, I didn't think about it at that time. Um, I think, you know, I mean, I think that there's something to be said for that. But in a way, my mother did take charge of being, you know, she was the breadwinner. She was very smart. She wrote uh, speeches for the Kennedys at one point about public power. She was, you know, really articulate, college educated. And so in a way, she was you know, kind of the mother and father in the house. She was certainly no shrinking violet. And uh, so she, you know, so I didn't really miss having a father. Um, Also, my father, you know, he had his own issues with alcohol and and other things. And so really pretty much around my my whole life, I was happy that I was raised by my mother alone. Uh, when I moved into People's Temple, though, I think that looking back, I figured that Jim was really good at coming to the rescue or coming in when you were at a, a um, you know, the road not taken. When you came to a crossroads, he was really good about figuring out what you were debating and how to pull you in. And so I think that he did notice that when I came in, I had, you know, the background without not having a father, but also these other political issues. And I was always an atheist. I never believed in God, and especially not after you know, November 18th, 1978, but before sure. him. So I wasn't looking for a religious leader, but I was looking for somebody who had character and integrity and who lived what they talked about. And so I think more than a father figure, I was looking for a role model who seemed to actually live what he talked about that was really what i was searching for that makes sense it's still a still a strong figure in in your life of course um right. so you joined in 1970 um 1977 you moved down to guiana is that correct right um so in 1970 i moved in and i started working at the welfare department and i um, had lots of jobs in the temple. I drove a Greyhound bus. We had a fleet of eight of uh, thirteen Greyhound buses. I drove the Greyhound bus, and I, um, you know, worked at the welfare department. I wrote letters to get people out of prison or off probation or off of, you know, be released into our custody. I helped kids get out of juvie hall. I helped people write appeals. Um, the People's Temple was set up as a service organization. So we had attorneys who were available to help with legal issues. I helped people write appeal letters if they had been turned down by welfare or disability. We had soup kitchens to give people food. Um, you know, we had all these different programs. People were encouraged to move in communally. The average Social Security check of people in the temple, even in Guyana, was about $300 a month. So we had all these people who were living and not having enough to eat or not having a secure place to live. So People's Temple, you know, or Jim encouraged people to move together and share resources. So, I mean, in a way that made money for him, but it was also a much better decision for a lot of people who were living in poverty. So... It was a very full life. You know, we lived a very full life, busy every minute doing one thing or another. 
So in the beginning, it sounds a lot like it was a, a bit of a, a group home or a halfway home to kind of get people going again. Yeah, um, there were many of them. I mean, when I moved out of the assistant Patrick's house, um, I think we moved into the first commune and there were about eight of us. But it it was just a commune. It was a commune, but it was governed by the bookkeeper in People's Temple. So in other words, we would turn in our checks, like my check from the welfare department. I would turn it in, and then that person would buy all our supplies, you know, put insure our cars, get us health insurance, um, buy all the food at the grocery store, every everything we needed. And then we had a tiny bit of money that we were given to live on when everything else was provided. So... Um, it wasn't a halfway home. It was really a, a regular but well-organized commune where the finances were handled by somebody who knew how to cut corners and save and, you know, buy in bulk. We had, you know, always uh, boxes of apples from Boonville. We would never buy, you know, a little plastic bag of apples for a big group of us. So we ate well, but everything was in bulk. And, you know, it was handled by somebody who was the expert in purchasing. And did, and did you have any jobs outside of of uh, the People's Temple? Like just a normal everyday job? Yeah, I worked at the welfare department. Oh, okay. So for seven years, I worked as an uh, eligibility worker in the welfare department up in Mendocino County. So I was doing intake. I was bilingual. So I did, you know, bilingual intake. And um, so I worked there. That was my day job. I mean, on the weekends and during the nights, I'd work on files, making sure we had people's addresses updated or writing articles for the magazines or running down to the post office in San Francisco to mail letters or mailers. Or um, I was also head of security in Redwood Valley for a while. Um, in about 1972, I was put on the planning commission, which was um, – it sounds so official, but really, Jim <laughs> made all the decisions. Any decision in People's Temple was made by Jim until the very end when he was, you know, too incoherent to do it. But at the beginning, he made all the decisions. But he would have a group of 90 of us or so who would sit around and we would talk over all the ideas, what we wanted out of People's Temple, whether we should buy a, a building in San Francisco and Los Angeles, uh, when we should take our trips, all the different details. And then he'd make all the final decisions. But he would collect all these people, either people who are really hard workers or people who are in vital spots like the bookkeeper and you know the people who ran the communes or people who were married to people in vital spots or people he didn't really trust and he wanted to watch them more carefully or people who were married to people he wanted to watch. I mean, it was kind of a conglomeration of everything. And so we met. And uh, there was some prestige to it, although a lot of people who saw us stay up one night every week were kind of delighted that they weren't called on to do it. Um, so I was on the planning commission, too. So, you know, we just kept busy with all the different jobs. And, um, you know, part of it, you know, I was young then. I was like 25. And so it was just exciting because I had been a philosophy major in college, I really did think that my life, you know, would be kind of, uh, you know, sitting at a desk or doing something more um, academic. And when I got myself in people's temple, every day was exciting and every day was different. And every day I met people that and got to know people intimately 
that I would never have even met if I had just stayed, you know, in the academics. So every single day I was thrilled that I was part of People's Temple. So I was a zealot. You know, not everybody in the temple and certainly not all the survivors were zealots, but really I loved People's Temple. And I love that, you know, Jim and his wife Marceline had been the first white couple to adopt a black child in the state of Indiana. I mean, he was like, paving a pathway for people who wanted to break out from these kind of ridiculous rules. Yeah. It seemed like he started off. So, I mean, genuine and nice in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was a facade. He was always a con man. Yeah. So even, you know, even with all the good things he did, like he did do some wonderful things, but you know, he was always a personality disorder. There was never a time that, you know, that, he was at the norm. He always had this dysfunction. And one of the things he did was surround himself with people who would not challenge him or help him course correct or anything. And so um, I do think that in our world, there are people who are um, character disorders or on the border, and somehow they get hooked up with a person or a group of people who kind of keep them sane and who kind of set a path for them so that they don't stray so much. And uh, because I don't think it's so clear that some one person is absolutely insane and another person is absolutely sane. I mean, sane and insane, you know, there's not, right. it, there's like a gray area and all of us have some area of ourselves. that's not quite, you know, it's kind of quirky or a little bit off. And so I think that with Jim, he just surrounded himself with people who were not going to ever challenge him. And so his worst problem was something that everybody just accepted and enabled. And early on, uh, before, when, when this was still in the States, were people already kind of catching on that this was a, a bit of a cult or was this widely accepted? What was the atmosphere like around him? <laughs> Well, you know, the the whole world word cult was something that was not a well-known terms in the 1970s. Okay. I mean, we had heard about some gangs, but not so much. And there had never been a community like People's Temple that was run by a madman in American history on American territory. So in a way, one of the things that when I go around and speak, I say, you know, when we joined People's Temple, nobody could say, you know what, don't forget that this guy who was a con man and was mentally unbalanced and a drug addict, remember when he killed all those people? So don't join People's Temple. There is no point of reference for us from before Jim Jones and People's Temple to think that any leader who had some humanism would ever take his flock and have everybody die. Do you know what I mean? Like that was never, there was no, it was inconceivable that that would ever happen. Yeah, there was, there was no, uh, nothing to compare it to. So who would have known that this would have happened? That's right. So you like, you could, nobody could warn you off by saying, but you know, crazy leaders do crazy things. Well, right. back then, you know, we didn't have name other than Hitler. We didn't really know, a, you know, person who was crazed, who could create such havoc or kill the people that he, you know, supposedly the day before said he loved so much. So um, now when people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to join a cult or I'm going to join this group or I'm going to do this, it's so easy for us to say, but wait, 
before you decide that, don't forget Jim Jones. And so now we can use that. And that's why it's important to discuss it. You know, it's important for people to know about Jim Jones, because if only to be able to warn somebody who's getting too involved in a group that's questionable, you need to say, you know what, don't take everything by face value. Never turn off your critical thinking because there are people out there, there are con artists who know how to suck you in and get you there. And so that's really a big part of what I talk about when I go around. That's so true. It, it, it's so weird to think about now because now the word cult has a very negative connotation. And, and I don't that's think right. anybody would actually say to you like, hey, I'm thinking about joining this cult. Cause that's right. You go, why the hell would you do that? But uh, now you would say like, hey, you know, that, that group you're involved in sounds pretty culty. And, mm-hmm. and then that'd be, that, you know, that kind of give away what you're, what you're thinking. So that's, uh, yeah, it's really weird to think about, you know, not having that term really in a mainstream type of way back then. That's right. I mean, cult is just short for culture. I mean, each group has its own culture. So whether you're the Boy Scouts or the Marines or somebody else, um, I mean, you have your own culture within that group. And so really cult is, comes from that same term. So it's a group, kind of a group philosophy or a group uh, mission or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. If you don't mind, let's, let's kind of move down to when you were in Guyana. Um, so you moved in in 1977, March 1977. Right. What was kind of the everyday like down there? Well, it started out um, in 1975, about 100 members of the planning commission flew down to look at Guyana. And we flew into Jonestown, which was, it's about an hour uh, plane ride from Georgetown. But um, later when we got there, we always used the boat to go back and forth. And it was a 24-hour boat ride from Georgetown. Oh, jeez. So, so Guyana is between Dutch Guyana, which is Suriname, and Venezuela. So a lot of people don't know where Guyana is, but it's right next to Venezuela. Um, So we went down in 1975. The moment I saw Guyana and I saw the people, you know, of all different races, Guyana was half black and half East Indian, and then just a sprinkling of Chinese and white and English speaking and in the tropics. Um, I actually thought it was just heavenly it was it was the most spectacular country from the minute i got there i loved it i loved the weather i loved the people they were engaging and wonderful so when we went down in 1975 i had already fallen in love with guyana as a place to go so um we we, when we went down there we said okay so how is this going to go we're going to create our own utopian society here 24 hours by boat from Georgetown, which nobody ever heard of. And so we were really remote. And the reason we got the property there was that Guyana and Venezuela had a a border dispute. And uh, Venezuela wanted that property back, and Guyana had to populate it so that it could show that it was actually putting it to good use. So because there was a border dispute, they allowed Jim to kind of settle there, kind of squatter's rights there, and settle and rent or lease that land. So that's how we happened to there, but really it fit Jim perfectly because he really wanted it so remote that nobody would challenge him. And that's pretty much what he did. He made it so remote that not only were there no people around supervising or checking what he was doing, nobody could get there without him saying, okay, maybe even telling them how to get there, you know, put him with a map. 
And also nobody could um, have outside information. So he was the sole teacher and lecturer about what was going on in the world. So he would listen to the BBC or some other international news, and then his paranoid mind would spit out something else, whatever he thought we needed to hear to strengthen our resolve to stay in Jonestown. So we were really, Jonestown turned into be something very remote and controlled. But um, when we went down in 1975, you know, we just saw the, the uh, agriculture and the community potential. Um, then in March of 1977, then we all went back to work in the United States. And in March of 1977, Jim asked me if I'd go down and my job was going to be working in Georgetown. And what I would be doing is I'd buy equipment that would go into Jonestown, like all of our heavy machinery that was tearing down the rainforest and all the building we were doing and the roads and the laundry and all that stuff. We needed to buy all the supplies in Georgetown. There was no town anywhere nearby in the northwest district of Guyana. So everything had to come from Georgetown or from the United States. So my job was to order everything that we needed for Georgetown, from clothes and glasses to the heavy equipment parts of things that fell apart or tires and food. So my job was to, we had a boat called the Cudjo that went up and down the river. So I would fill the boat with everything, including all the fresh produce and everything. Then the ship would be gone, and I'd have three days to start accumulating the rest, the next trip. So it would go back to Jonestown, empty everything off, get ready, come back down, and I'd fill it again. So for about a year, that was my job. I would go into Jonestown from time to time, but... My job was really in Georgetown to buy supplies. And who was doing, you know, the heavy lifting, the construction? Was this members or did, did they yeah, hire Yeah, it was all members. It was all members. Because, you know, we had a lot of young people and we had many people who knew about construction or could get trained. So we, you know, we had our own electricians. We um, did hire the Guyanese at the very beginning to show us how to clear the land and how to grow some of the crops like the cassava and edos, things like that. So we used the local um, people to teach us how to do things but we had enough manpower that we were gonna that once we were trained we would be handling everything ourselves but you know it turned out we were never going to be self-sufficient there was no way for us to have um you know like have enough uh produce at all for to feed a thousand people three times a day so even when we looked to the future about what Jonestown was going to look like, we knew we were going to have to be supplying some of our uh, food goods and certainly the machinery and things like that. We were going to always have to buy additional uh, supplies. So you were in Georgetown most of the time that everyone was down in Guyana, right? Well, I was, so I was in Georgetown for a year. Okay. And then the second year I moved back into Jonestown. And so I lived in Jonestown for nearly a year. And I worked on an agricultural crew in the daytime. And then, you know, I would teach the kids Spanish at night. And then I'd work in the law office and do typing, you know, until the wee hours of the morning. And then I'd go to sleep. So, you know, we all had long days. We all worked seven days a week until the early summer of 1978. We worked seven days a week. There was no Sunday, you know, kickback and rest. We were always working because we had so much to do. And, you know, most of us focused on the community. Okay, what do we need to do now? We need to build more housing. We need to do this. 
And then Jim and his small circle of mistresses and secretaries, you know, became really more and more diabolical because they were not in the mainstream of what was going on in the community. I didn't miss Jim Jones being around so much because I just love the community. I love the people that I sat with at meals. I love that we were all one big family. I love that there was no racism, you know, that people were seemed to be treated with dignity and everything. So my, um, really my biggest fault was that I was so happy in Jonestown. I did not acknowledge enough that there were people who were unhappy there. Or I, and I did not acknowledge that Jim, you know, had so much power that he could decide anything about anybody in that area without challenge. So really my biggest uh, regret is that I was so happy that I didn't, you know, I did turn off my critical thinking and I didn't think about, well, he doesn't look well. I hope he's making good decisions or sound decisions. Um, he wasn't making sound decisions and I wasn't paying attention. So was, was the atmosphere in Jonestown, I mean, was it a happy atmosphere or were you maybe kind of turning on the blinders and, and not seeing what was really going on? You know, I think that one of the most interesting and maybe even peculiar parts of what was going on in Jonestown, um, I think that my point of view was that when Congressman Ryan came down, we're kind of jumping forward, but for me, I was always happy in Jonestown. I never felt um, I never felt unhappy. I never thought I would leave. I was totally content. I knew that you know it was a very uh, kind of primitive time to be setting things up, and that once we got things together, everything was going to be better. That was my my interpretation of everything that went on. Yeah. I thought we were working really hard. We'd work really hard for whatever, another year or two or three. And then things would settle down and our community would be built and we could go ahead and flourish like we had done before. So that was my point of view. I could be right next to somebody who had a completely different point of view because we couldn't talk about what the negative parts were. Like, I didn't see the negative parts. I never had to edit what I felt. But in many ways, it was like Hitler's Germany when the kids could not talk, the parents could not talk in front of their kids because the kids would run and tell, you know, whoever the local Gestapo about what somebody had said. So the people who were not happy in Jonestown, they just had to have their own communication with a few people and be very careful. And so the result was people who were happy there I mean, I had no idea the extent of how unhappy people were. I just didn't know. We hear a lot now about, you know, the fear tacti- tactics, the, mm-hmm. you know, the beatings, the, the whatever was going on. So you just weren't even around any of that. Well, I mean, I was around it, but, um, you know, I thought of myself as a socialist. And I thought, you know, here's Che Guevara, who lived a really difficult life always on the move because somebody was after him. I felt that we were socialists and that we had to, and that the means would justify the end. That's kind of how I live my life. If there was something that I saw that I didn't like, like say I saw somebody disciplined, um, or maybe I was disciplined. I mean, I was disciplined a couple of times also. So, So I could say, you know, I, 
like one time um, I was brought up on the public floor in Jonestown because I wasn't working hard enough. I was talking too much while I was, um, you know, weeding the sweet potatoes or something because I was a crew leader. So I had to model how to be a hard worker. So anyway, so I was brought up saying that I talked too much when I was leading the crew. And so then, you know, people would yell at me and then I would be put on what's called the public services crew for people who had complaints about their work habits. And so then we had to run from place to place in Jonestown and take the showers at the, you know, after everybody else finished taking a shower for the day, we do that. So it was like the, the consequence of not doing the best you could do was being put on a public services crew. So then I was on that crew for a week and then I became the crew boss of the public service. So it flipped around. Hmm. So it wasn't like you were forever going to be, you know, in one spot, one spot, you would have a consequence for your behavior and then you'd move on and somebody else would have a consequence and somebody else would. So, Looking at that whole picture, I'd say, okay, well, you know, I need to shut up when I'm working, and so I'll just do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I didn't um, – anyway, my feeling was opposite, that if I had never been touched, if the only people who were ever called on the floor or held accountable were, you know, the kids or – you know, people who are black or people who are Hispanic or people who were, you know, not on planning commission. Um, For me, I felt that I wanted to be held accountable just like everybody else. And so for me, it made me feel more part of the family that I wasn't considered an untouchable and that I was held accountable. And so that was my perspective, but somebody else might've had a whole other perspective. So, um, I think, so it's kind of hard to explain, but I think if you're in a big family and everybody is treated the same way, then it creates a kind of a collaboration or a friendship or an intimacy that is wonderful. And I was feeling that I was part of this huge family of all those races, of all these different people who were so interesting and had such great points of view and insights. To me, it just pulled me in closer feeling that I was in the right place and that this adopted family of mine was what I wanted to be part of. Wow. So, I mean, you just it, it kind of made you feel more accepted even. Yeah. And so, but, you know, and then because I didn't know how anybody else felt, my expectation or my thought was that everybody felt the way I did. Because, you know, you couldn't talk about the negative part. Right. I mean, in a way, we all, we each felt that however we felt, everybody felt. <laughs> I guess because if you don't know, any, about it. yeah, if you don't know any better, how would you know that other people felt differently? That's right. And certainly nobody was going to talk to me because it was pretty obvious that I was happy in Jonestown and kind of a zealot. So even if there might've been somebody talking to somebody, they wouldn't talk to me because I, you know, you if you're going to complain, you're not going to go to somebody who obviously doesn't feel like she wants to complain. So then, you know, another reason why I wouldn't know that people were unhappy. So, you know, while we were in Jonestown, so all of this was going on with the community of about 850 people who didn't really know 
what was coming down the pike. Like they did, we didn't know what was going on in San Francisco. And so all of us who lived in Jonestown, we were living and creating this community. And, you know, whether you liked it 100% or, you know, 30%, we were all working in this one effort. And so what was happening, though, is that in San Francisco, there was a whole other thing happening. Um, people were beginning to wonder why Jim Jones had so much power in San Francisco politics. And they didn't know why this guy who was never holding an elected office, he would meet with, you know, Rosalind Carter when she came to town or all the big wigs or the governor. I mean, he would have all these um, sessions with people who were had political power in, the, in California and um, they couldn't figure out why. Why would they pick Jim Jones? Why is he on the Housing Commission of San Francisco? Why is all this happening? And so there was an investigative reporter for New West Magazine, and Marshall Kilduff uh, either owned the magazine or was the editor or something. And so he, um, this investigative reporter said, you know, I'm going to try and dig deep into who Jim Jones is and why everybody kind of kowtows to him. Who is he that he never gets questioned? There's never any negative press. So while we were in Guyana and really focused on Guyana, everybody in San Francisco was letting Jim know that there were problems on the horizon. This investigative reporter uncovered that Jim had been busted in a sting operation in Los Angeles in 1972. And, you know, Jim had never really addressed that for the the whole church. Mm -hmm. And so there, and there were a lot of other things, you know, his, he was found to be inappropriate in different settings. He was in places with judges in San Francisco that weren't quite, nobody quite understood how he could get that close attention in different cases that were going on. And so there were some different issues on who he was and what he was doing. And um, when we had been in San Francisco, Jim had worked, Jim had worked out a way to um, like if Mayor Moscone was having a, a business meeting or a conference, he could call Jim and say, you know what, I'm going to have a press conference in 45 minutes about this meeting we're finishing up and there's nobody here to hear the press conference. And so Jim said, well, okay, I'll handle it. And he'd bring 300 people by bus and drop them off for the press conference. And also he looks super popular. Yeah. So he, and so he, all the politicians realized he had all these people and the buses to bring them over to wherever they wanted to go. And so Jim was able to, you know, fill that need for local politicians to make them feel popular and supported by all races and, you know, be looking progressive and all that. So Jim won a lot of friends because he was able to provide these, the people, you know, people power. And so when Marshall Kilduff and the New West Magazine started doing their research, um, Jim started calling in the chits. He'd say, you know what? I provided 300 people when you needed it. You know, you were elected and it was kind of a close race. And, you know, very likely the voters in People's Temple were the ones who threw you over the top. What, how, all this, you need to stop this investigation and stop the articles. And so the... New West Magazine got all kinds of calls. There were death threats with people, um, wow. you know, who were a part of it. He was threatened. All kinds of different things happened in the New West Magazine offices and everything because uh, people were calling, you know, Jim was calling in the chits. And then, you know, probably people in the temple called and threatened them also. So um, 
all of the things that went on back here were mounting. And so Jim had a big push to get lots more people to Jonestown before all the news hit the press because he was not able to stop it in San Francisco. So the summer of 1978, we had, you know, hundred, you know, several hundred more people come than we were pre prepared to house and feed. So it got particularly difficult the summer of 1978 because we rushed all those people over and we did not really have adequate places for them to live or, you know, have facilities that we needed for them. So, but all that was happening in San Francisco and Jim never talked about that in Jonestown. Like we were never brought up to date with what was going on in San Francisco. And did his, you know, starting around that time up until, you know, right before the end, did his demeanor change a little or was he very kind of cool and collected towards the public? Well, you know, he, he started living in, in uh, Guyana in 1977, in the late summer of 77. So he was in in Jonestown, but he would travel back and forth to Georgetown um, over the next few months. Um, by the spring and early summer of 1978, there were several different child custody suits that were being charged. He was being charged with, uh, including including Tim and Grace Stone and some other kids who were um, foster kids, and there was no authority for him to take them to Guyana. So there were um, I'm not sure if there were like five something five to nine different cases of relatives who were filing suit to get their kids out of Guyana. And so the government of Guyana said, you know, we haven't really resolved all this. You're a good buddy. We like you a lot. But for right now, why don't you just stay in Jonestown until we get it all resolved? You could come out and we don't, but we don't want to have a big issue with a custody issue when you're walking around in Georgetown. So in a way, Jim was under house arrest in Jonestown, this remote huh this remote little village that was really staffed by farm workers. I mean, really that's what we did there. There was, it's not like there was any, um, you know, we were all just working really hard on the farm. So I think that Jim's ego, which had gotten so overblown and inflated with all his contacts in San Francisco, he went from that to being, you know, in the middle of this forest with a hundred, a thousand people who were totally exhausted by the end of the day, no matter how important he thought his words were, nobody could stay awake. So, I mean, I think that Jim's, Jim's demeanor kind of stayed the same, but part of it was, you know, he was heavily into drugs by that time. And he also lived separately kind of off to the side out of the community with his mistresses and nurses. And so, when he was not looking very spiffy, they just wouldn't let him out. So he could make decisions or more and more they started making decisions because he wasn't able to. And I don't know if you've seen the, um, when Congressman Ryan came to, to Jonestown and they interviewed Jim as Jim was talking to some of the people who were leaving, Jim was totally incoherent. He was not, not understandable, not making any sense. Yeah, I heard so, some of the recordings. Yeah. So, I mean, he, by the, by the end, he was really incoherent and not making any decisions, but he had infected these nurses and secretaries and mistresses who lived with him so that even on the last day when he couldn't have done anything else, they were the ones who put out the vats of cyanide and flavor aid. He didn't do any of that. So it he was, was just making the announcement? Work. 
he was making the announcement, but he had given people their jobs to do as he always did. You know, he would, you know, he would have everything. Okay, Laura, you're going to do this, 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 and this, and this order and giving yourself 15 minutes. He would itemize everything people were doing because he was a hands-on manager. Mm -hmm. And so until he was totally not able to do that, he planned it. And so, you know, we don't really know when the final plan for the poison was actually uh, planned to the last detail the way it was. It could have been the night before when Ryan was there and things seemed to be going badly because people were asking to leave. Or it could have been, you know, a week before, a month before, six months before. The cyanide was in in Jonestown for at least six months to a year before Ryan even came down. So did he um, kind of parcel out these jobs in a way that no one saw the big picture? Um, I think that there were people who did see the big picture at the end because that same thing about his disorder, he kind of collected people around him who um, bought what he was selling or who you know, were persuaded totally to follow his every instruction. And so there were some of the people around him at the end who were people who were somewhat dysfunctional themselves. And I just think he infected, I mean, some of the people, some of his secretaries were the smartest people I've ever met. And yet at the end, they were so um, sickened or infected by his same disease of paranoia and, um, you know, the end justifies the means and Jonestown couldn't survive without Jim Jones at the head and all those things. I mean, I think that they um, were just completely tainted by him and it goes beyond brainwashing. I think, I mean, I think it's, I think all of us in Jonestown were brainwashed. I mean, I was brainwashed into not noticing what I should have been noticing, but there were people who were beyond that, who had really picked up his psychosis and so they were the ones who worked closest with him and were people who saw his decline and rather than pull back or say, okay, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not giving him any more drugs. I'm not covering for him anymore. I'm not going to do this code of silence. They just all gave up and went the whole way with him. Wow. That's, that's so weird to think about nowadays. It is. Yeah. Um, so uh, not jumping, but moving a little differently, you happened to miss the big event. That's right. How, um, I mean, how did this? How did this come about? I mean, how lucky? Yeah. Um. You know, it, it's kind of an interesting story. It's like everything in people's temple. You know, there's no like yes or no. Everything. You know, um, when you everything has to be peeled back so you understand it better. Like when I was in um, Jonestown at the end of October. Jim called me to his cottage and he said, you know, I'd like to have you go back into Georgetown and relieve the people who were there because the people in Georgetown had families in Jonestown that they hadn't seen for a while. I said, you know, that's fine. So I went into Jonestown, you know, basically Congressman Ryan came down. He went into Jonestown. People wanted to leave with him. He was leaving with them and, uh, People were shot at the airstrip and then people in Jonestown died. And I missed all of that because I was in Georgetown. Wow. <laughs> so, but, and so I, you know, so for, first of all, everybody always said, 
to me, you're so blessed. And, but I, you know, I mean, I never felt blessed. I felt that in a way people who died had it easier than I had it because I had to keep going. And so, I mean, I never felt blessed. I've never, I always felt, why would I be blessed when there are all these absolutely fantastic people who died? It just doesn't make sense, which is why, you know, the atheism kicks in. There was no justice in who survived and who didn't. So, but I think the thing that, uh, so when I first came back, I thought it was a fluke. In fact, even, you know, when I wrote my book, I said, you know, I think it's a fluke that I just survived. Mm -hmm. But really, there was no fluke in People's Temple. Everything was planned. Everything was anticipated. So I thought more about it. And it turns out that in Georgetown, the woman who was kind of running the house was Sharon Amos. And she was someone who had worked with me at the welfare department for seven years. Okay. And, I, and I had been her driver around San Francisco up to Redwood Valley um, when she was too tired or sick to do it. So we had established a relationship over these seven years that, you know, we were really good friends and I respected her a lot. So she was the person in charge of Georgetown. So when, um, when everything was going on in Jonestown and people were dying, Jim sent a coded message to Georgetown and to San Francisco and Los Angeles and Redwood Valley, the people who were still back there getting people ready to go and doing all the work. He sent a message saying, everybody is dying in Jonestown and you need to all kill yourselves. It's a revolutionary suicide and you need to all kill yourselves. So he gave the message to Sharon Amos in the Georgetown house. She sent me across town to get the basketball team that was in town because um, two of Jim's sons were on the basketball team, Stephen and Jimmy, yeah. and some other people who were involved in you know, some decision-making. So I had the car. So I went across town. I brought the basketball team home. And then Sharon met with Jimmy and Stephen and some of the others up in a back bedroom in the house in Georgetown where 50 of us lived. And she said, you know, Jim said, we're supposed to all kill ourselves. And so Stephen Jones, Jim's 19-year-old son, said, absolutely not. We're not doing it. Can't I get out to Jonestown? I want to stop what's going on in Jonestown. But, you know, there was no, there's no quick way to get to Jonestown from Georgetown. Right. You know? And so there was no way he could stop everything that was going on there. But in the Georgetown house, he said, we are not following that instruction. Everything Everything is over. We're not doing it. And then he got on the phone and called Redwood Valley and San Francisco and L.A. said, we're not doing it. Disregard that message. We're not doing it. It's all over. We're not doing any of that. Stop it. And so he literally stopped the whole momentum of what might have happened if Jim's message had been followed. So it could have been so, so he, much worse. It could have been so much worse. So he stopped it. The rest of us in the house in Georgetown, we had political meetings to go to and talent shows and all these other activities that we had scheduled. So we all left. We didn't know anything about that conversation with Stephen and Sharon Amos. Mm -hmm. So when we came back a couple hours later, the Guyanese Defense Force had taken over the house and they had us all sit in a circle in the kitchen, you know, all 45 or 50 of us in the living room, in the kitchen. And while we were sitting there, they brought out the body bags of Sharon and her three kids. Because oh, she had followed the instruction. And that was the first most of us knew anything about what had gone on in Jonestown. Wow. That's, I mean, that's so deep. If 
do you think if you were in Jonestown at the time, would you have been a part of the group or? Yeah. You know, I, I can't imagine watching people I loved all die and thinking that I could ever go on. It was hard enough for me and I wasn't there. It was, I mean, going on really was very difficult for all of us, I think. But for me, if I had been in Jonestown and I saw, you know, the children die and I just, I can't imagine surviving that or wanting to survive that. So I don't really have a question about Jonestown if I had been there. Yeah. So what were some of the the long-term effects after that? Well, what I did is um, I came back to the United States and the, I went to get my passport and they said, well, you can't have your passport because you owe the government $500. And I said, well, <laughs> how could I owe the government $500? I haven't even been here. And they said, well, that's how much it costs to bring you back. And I said, well, I didn't even want to come back. And they said, yeah, but you had a subpoena to appear before the grand jury in San Francisco. You had to come <laughs> back. I said, yeah, but that's not my problem. That, you know, right. you've created that. That's not me. But they said, you know, you got to pay the money. We were holding your passport until you pay the money. And so that was one of the things that, in a way, pushed me to get my ass going. Because I knew I didn't want them to have my passport. And so I just went to work. So like the very next Monday, I went to Kelly Services in San Francisco. And I said I'd been traveling in the, you know, in the South America and all around. So that's why I had no job history for two years. And I just got a job and I went to work and I started earning money and I got my passport back. And I got money that I could give some of the other survivors who, you know, didn't have resources. And so, you know, it, it worked out that that was one thing that, the unintended consequence of them telling me I couldn't have my passport actually did help me in the long run. So I went to work and I worked, I started going to school at night, but um, I was really unhappy on the weekends because there were no classes. So I could work all day, go to school all night. And then Friday night after work, you know, I was never somebody who goes to malls or shopping and, TV. That's really not who I am. I wanted sure. to be an activist. You know, I want to make a difference. So I started going around Synanon, and I don't. Did you ever hear of Synanon? Yeah, Czech uh, Theater. Yeah, I looked it up a little bit and, and read a little bit about it. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. so Synanon was a drug rehab, re, a residential drug rehabilitation facility. I didn't use drugs, but. They, you know, Synanon was alive 24 hours a day. You know, they had all these addicts who were kicking heroin and they had all these different projects and all these different things. It was kind of like an, a, a city unto itself. And so it had stuff going all the time. And I was totally, you know, ADD at that point. I mean, I had to have something going every minute. There was no, I never wanted any downtime. You don't want to be so, left to your own thoughts. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just had to stay busy. Yeah. I didn't know make it otherwise. So, um, so I stayed around Synanon and played the Synanon game, which was their kind of group therapy to get drug addicts off of drugs. But it actually was a therapy that helped me a lot because you could sit in a group and for about the first three years, I just cried in every Synanon game. I mean, I couldn't even talk about it. I couldn't address the specifics or anything, but even as I was sitting there, I'd be sitting next to somebody who, you know, whose mother had cancer or who, you know, I don't know, fell and broke her back or whatever it was. Somehow, slowly, I started realizing that so many people had tragedies in their lives and that 
people, you know, you just had to keep going and that, you know, hopefully things would get better, but that, you know, you just, nobody has it easy. It's not like I was the only one in the world who was traumatized. Many people were traumatized and had to live with it and keep going. So somehow it strengthened me and it also got me not just paying attention to myself and not being so egocentric. I saw, you know, other people and what their needs were and things. So the Cinnamon game really helped me a lot. So I would go, you know, work days, go to school at nights, and then on weekends I'd spend most of my time at Cinnamon and play Cinnamon games. And then after a year, I moved into Cinnamon. And uh, some of the other survivors have told me that they screamed at me and said, don't do it, don't move into another cult. I can't believe you're doing this. Don't do it. But, you know, as usual, you know, I didn't listen to anybody but myself. I, ne- I didn't get over that. You'd think I would have learned. You know, by that, you'd think think I'd get it. I'd get the message by then. But no, I didn't. So I moved into Sinanon, and uh, I actually lived there 10 years. I lived, and I met my husband there. We've been married going on 35 years this 4th of July. Oh, wow. Congrats. Thanks. Uh, My son was born in 1989, and then Sinanon closed down in in um, 1990. And so I said, well, I guess I have to get my ass and go to work. (laughs) So I went back to school and I got my bachelor's in psychology and philosophy. Then I started getting my teaching credential and I am a bilingual teacher. So, you know, I got my clear credential and everything. And so then I taught for the next 25 years. So, you know, over that period of time, I kind of built, I kind of built my own foundation to keep going. So I had a family, I had a good job, I had a profession, um, things were going well for me. I had become a Quaker in the early 90s. So by 1998, the 20th anniversary, I said, you know, I have to figure out what happened on my on my watch. How could I have been so oblivious to everything that happened? Yeah. And so at the 20th anniversary, I revisited all the survivors. We got back together. And really, we have been having really kind of intimate settings for the last 15 years, just trying to figure out what the hell happened. How did it happen? Who knew what? Why didn't I see it? You know, and it's like the analogy with a, an elephant in the room and one person can only touch the toenail, one person only touches the trunk. And <laughs> so you don't really know it's an elephant. And in a way, everything that was going on in people's temple, what we knew was, you know, could put a whole picture together, but it was a collage that we didn't get the, you know, we didn't have a frame of reference and we didn't understand it at the time. So now, you know, we're in touch, like I'm in touch with about 65 survivors. Um, About five years ago, I sat down and said, okay, I need to write my book. And, you know, I waited until I was stable in all the other areas of my life because I knew it would be pretty traumatic revisiting it. But I did that and I wrote my book. And so, you know, you just uh, keep on moving. And I mean, now I'm an activist still. I'm involved with the ACLU and immigration and you know, um, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center and the Innocence Project and a number of different other organizations. And I'm still a Quaker. And it's just that I, you know, I want to be, I want to make a difference in the world. I want to stop things from being so cruel and unjust for people who are poor. And so, you know, I kind of came out the other end of it, knowing in a way that I could move mountains if I just focused. That's great. Um 
couple of questions for you before we wrap this up. So okay. you were uh, an atheist before all this. And, yes. And you're a Quaker now. Yeah, I'm an atheist Quaker. They kind okay. of take me the way I am. Yeah, they take me the way I am. You know, no one can give me a good argument about why I should believe in God at this point. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm with you on that. I just, uh, from what I know, and which is very little, so excuse my ignorance, but from what I know about Quakers is they do believe in, in God. and uh, You know, they believe in an inner light and that there is good in all people. And so, I mean, and I try to believe that. And most of the time can believe that. And so, and also, you know, they have, you know, limitless integrity and they work for causes and they're, you know, and they have simplicity. They have like so many of my same values and treating people well. So, and um, they are inclusive rather than exclusive. So if you, if there's something like, I don't call it God. I think that there's a synergy in the world because sometimes there are things that happen that you can't understand. Like, you know, I mean, I think that there's some kind of a, something in the world that makes things happen that you just can't believe or serendipitous, you know, sort of cosmic force. Yeah. There's some kind of, there's some thing there, but it's not fair and it's not, you know, it doesn't treat, good people properly it gives bad people sometimes bad people survive more than good people and so i mean i don't understand any of that but i think that quakers you know the other part of it is i belong to the uh, the quakers who have silent worship and so you know we sit in a group and we don't we don't have to talk we're already like we're together enough that we don't have to talk to each other to share being together and so that silence resonates with me. I really love that part. So I love the inclusivity and in that, you know, you can be in a room with somebody quietly. You don't have to, you know, interrupt their flow or have them interrupt yours. You really have your space, but you're kind of cherished in that group. I love that part. That's very cool. And so to all those people out there that thinks it's the guy that makes oatmeal, it's not. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, one last question for you, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Um all this cult talk, a big documentary has uh, was released recently, Going Clear, which is the Scientology documentary. Right. You obviously were in the middle of one of the biggest cults ever and one of the first ones. Do you think that Scientology is a cult? You know, I, um, I'm kind of careful what things I study, and um, that was a little too close to home for me sure. to watch the documentary. And so I haven't watched it. Um, I, I absolutely, I do believe that there are cults all around us. I mean, I think that Simplify and the Marines create a cult. I think that, you know, many churches that tell people not to vote or how to vote are cults. I think that we're a society of cults and I would not be surprised if Scientology is not one also, but I haven't studied it enough to be able to identify it, but I know that our culture I mean, we call it gangs if you're poor and lived, live in a drug-infested area. We call it gangs, but really that's a cult too. That's so, true. I mean, I think that our society breeds cults and breeds leaders and breeds people who tell people, other people how to think and what to do and how to dress. I mean, I just think even, you know, on a Facebook sometimes people say, oh, yeah, when I see – 
you know, young men with their pants down below their butts. We ought to, you know, do whatever we ought to do to them. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. I think that however a person chooses to dress, I want to know what a person does to treat another person fairly. I don't care how a person dresses. I don't care what color the person's hair is, if it's long or short, bald or not. I want to see how that person treats another person. And so that's all I care about. So I think that, you know, they're all, there are many people ready to tell you how to do your business. And I'm done with that. Nobody's going to tell me how to do my business. That's and amazing. I'm going to tell you, I want to, I want to tell you to be nice to people. I'm a teacher. I tell kids, you know what? Be nice. I don't want to see, I don't want bullying. I don't want any of this. Don't even start me on this topic. <laughs> I'm bullying. That's right. That's good. That's that's awesome. You you sound like an amazing person, and I wish you were my teacher when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, well, some of the kids I had today, they might trade with you. They say, ah, no. <laughs> that's good. Um, I have to say to everybody listening, I've only just barely started the book, but it's fantastic. So make sure you pick up Jonestown Survivor and Insider's Look. Where can they get this? I got mine on Amazon. Where can other people get this? Okay, so you can get everything on Amazon. So on Amazon, you can get my uh, soft cover book. You can get Kindle. You can get Nook, uh, ebook. I guess you have to do that through Barnes and Noble. But I yeah. also have it on audio and Whisper. So if you get a Kindle book and the audio, you know you might want to read it sometimes and listen to it sometimes. So. You can do that. You can also get a signed copy off my website, and my website is jonestownsurvivor.com. I also have a Facebook page that's Jonestown Survivor, and I've also posted 1,700 pictures on Flickr.com of People's Temple Photo Gallery. So I have them organized by albums of, you know, Indiana, Redwood Valley, San Francisco, and then many from Guyana and some of different survivor events since we got back. So all kinds of different pictures on um, Flickr.com. And also I love questions. So if you ever do like get my book and read it and you come up with a question, I would love you to email me and you can just do it right through my website, jonestownsurvivor.com. I answer all inquiries and I have a lot of students who interview me for history projects and, you know, researchers and it's an interest that continues all the time. Like I have probably two or three contacts every week from either the media or high school students or college students or, you know, authors who want to write about it or documentarians. So it's a very interesting um, movement that hasn't ended yet. The waves haven't ended yet. And it's still a relevant topic, like I said, Scientology and, and, and other cult-like uh, entities. That's right. So that's, that's uh very relevant still. Uh, so thank you so much for hanging out and, and telling me all about this. I really, really appreciate it. So, you know, the part that to me, in a way, it's hard because one hour, in a way, you can cover a lot of territory in an hour. Yeah. And then on the other hand, there's it seems like there's always so much more too. you know. So anyway, if it turns out that you have people who are interested in further discussion, then feel free to call me. I would love that. And I'm sure there will be. I've, I've had a lot of people tell me how interested they are in this specific show. Um, oh, good. So good. my, yeah, my guess is I'm going to get a lot of, a lot of questions and I hope I do. And, and if I do, then I would love to do a follow-up. I think that'd be so awesome. 
Okay, that'd be great. I'd love it. Because, you know, the part I didn't say is it looks like, um, you know, I do oral history of survivors, and I've already done 10, and now I'm going to do two more this year coming up pretty soon. And um, so while I was doing the oral histories, I thought to myself, you know what? I think I'd really like to go back to Guyana one last time. When I was in Guyana, I left from Georgetown, so I never went back to Jonestown. I know it's all overgrown in rainforest and everything, but anyway, I said, well, let me just see if anyone else is interested. So I sent it out to the 65 survivors I'm in touch with, and within 24 hours, 22 people said they wanted to go back Wow! for a visit. So the tentative plan is in October – a group of us is going to go back oh, to Jonestown. Really, that'll be really yeah. cool. So anyway, just things keep happening. You know, it's not a finished subject yet. Yeah, apparently. Wow. And once again, it's jonestownsurvivor.com, and we will have links up on all of our uh, web pages and social medias, I want to know show.com and Facebook and everything else. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you. A huge thanks again to Laura Johnston Cole for joining the podcast. Don't forget to check out her book, Jonestown Survivor, an insider's look. You can get that on Amazon. I have a link up. If you go to IWantToKnowShow.com, click on the guest page, click on her little bio. There's a link to Amazon where you can buy it. Or, hey, if you guys are going to buy anything from Amazon, we have a new sponsor, which is Amazon. Just go to IWantToKnowShow.com, click on the banner at the bottom of the homepage, and it will not cost you anything extra when you're buying your Amazon goods. But it will kick a couple of percentage points our direction. Help keep this show free for you guys, the listeners. There are a couple of things from the interview I thought I should explain just to make sure everybody knew exactly what was going on. The first is she mentioned Congressman Ryan. Congressman Leo Ryan led a bit of a search party down to Jonestown in the days leading up to the massacre and was ambushed on his way out as he was in the plane. He was shot and killed along with uh, people from his party, as well as people he was trying to help escape from Jonestown. A very sad situation. Also, she mentioned Synanon. Uh, the Synanon organization was initially a drug rehab program that was founded by a man by the name of Charles E. Diedrich in 1958 in Santa Monica, California. By the early 1960s, Synanon had also become an alternative community, attracting people with its emphasis on living a self-examined life as aided by group truth-telling sessions that came to be known as the Synanon Game. As the Synanon game, Synanon ultimately became the Church of Synanon in the 70s and disbanded permanently in 1991 due to many criminal activities, including attempted murder of which members were convicted and civil legal problems, including losing its tax-free status with the IRS due to financial misdeeds, destruction of evidence, and terrorism, has been called one of the most dangerous and violent cults America had ever seen. So I just wanted to make sure you guys knew what that was when she brought it up. So a few things. First, you can get Laura Johnston Cole at jonestownsurvivor.com as well as on Facebook, facebook.com slash jonestownsurvivor and insiders look. And there's a dash between each one. Or you can just go to iwanttoknowshow.com and click on the link from her bio. A few things to cover before we get out of here. First is she told me off the air that she would love to do a follow-up show. So if you guys have any questions, you can send them to me and maybe we can get a whole second episode out of this. You know, she is looking to go down to Guyana once again and kind of revisit the, the area. So that would be very interesting stuff to ask about. And I'm sure you have questions that I should have asked. You can also ask her directly by going to jonestownsurvivor.com. She welcomes the question. She's very good at responding to people. So once again, thank you so much to Laura Johnston Cole, author of Jonestown Survivor, an insider's look. 
If you want to get her book, go to Amazon, click on the banner at the bottom of the IWantToKnowShow.com homepage. Helps kick a couple of cents our way, keep this show free for you guys. If you enjoy it, once again, please tell a friend, tell some family, tell anyone you think would be interested by this. I want to let you guys know that whenever I have an upcoming guest, I post it on Facebook and Twitter, and I welcome your questions so that I can sound more smart and professional when I talk to them. So if you have any questions for upcoming guests, as well as suggestions or feedback or even a topic that maybe you think I should cover, or if you want to be on the show, all these things, you can contact me at IWantToKnowPod at gmail.com, Facebook.com slash IWantToKnowShow, on Twitter at IWantToKnowShow, or you can just go to IWantToKnowShow.com and you'll find all that information right there. So if you want this follow-up show, please let me know and let Laura know how much you enjoyed the show. Go over to her webpage and send her a note about how good she was on this episode. Sorry once again about the technical difficulties. There's nothing I could do. I'm just glad I was able to save the file for you guys. And I think that's just about it. So thanks for listening. And on that note, good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.